In the summer between my junior and senior year of college, I was very determined to live away from home. So I decided on Colorado, much to my mother's dismay. I lived with my aunt and uncle in Lakewood, which is a southern suburb of Denver. I got an internship at a veterinary clinic in Arvada on the northwest side of Denver. And almost every weekend, I'd pull out a map, drive to another mountain range, and try my hand at hiking. I horrified my mother, particularly, and my aunt and uncle by always going alone, though it was how I talked my mom into my first cell phone, so, you know, silver linings. But going alone was what I needed that summer. It had been a hard year with a devastating breakup in the way that only young love breakups can be, And somehow I just knew that the mountains were the thing that would heal me. I don't know why I thought this, being a Minnesota gal through and through, but there was something that I thought I was surely going to find up there that I wasn't quite sure I'd find at home. So here's a picture of one of my first hikes up to Lake Isabel. Uh, It was uh, an experience to sit up there by myself, on a hike I had done by myself at a lake with a journal and just write and be uh, in that experience. It was kind of incredible, actually. So going alone into the mountains, my hiking savvy aunt and uncle and my level 11 warrior mother gave me some hard and fast rules of the mountains. So number one was my mom's rule, which was please don't go, just stay home, which I didn't, didn't listen to that one. Uh, Rule number two was don't go too fast, just slow and steady. Uh, Watch the sky in all directions. If your hike, and number four, if your hike plan puts you above the timberline, start early so you're hiking back below the timberline by early afternoon at the latest. These were simple rules to help with your stamina, to prevent headaches or other altitude related symptoms, to not get caught in a storm while you're up on the mountain. So let's just say, just as I wasn't great at following my mom's number one rule, I wasn't great at any of the other ones either. I remember running running to my car down a mountain in a full hailstorm at Rocky Mountain National Park because I had started too late in the day to finish the hike before one of those quick afternoon storms popped up. I had bruises, actually, I remember, from hail. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) Uh, uh, I was above the tree line on Green Mountain outside of Boulder when I remembered that rule number three just a little bit too late and noticed a storm had popped up when I was well above the timber line. And so I totally and completely safely crouched underneath a bush so I wouldn't be the tallest thing on the mountain while the lightning flashed. Don't tell my mom that one. (laughs) Just hoping she's not listening today. Uh So this is the story that we have in front of us today, these disciples up on the mountain, high up on the mountain, and maybe breaking a few of the rules of the mountain. They went up, maybe not for the same reason. For me, what I hoped to find on the mountain, I did find up there. I did have these experiences where I felt healed and closer to God, and I I held those close to me as I walked back down. These disciples were not going up to the mountain particularly to find something, but they did certainly have quite a moment. I kind of imagine them going up this mountain, working too hard, moving too fast, getting tired. It says they tried so hard to stay awake. And then 
just when they're thinking things can't get worse because they're so tired, a cloud comes and envelops the whole top of the mountain. Oh, and before that, Jesus starts glowing, which is a whole part that I didn't experience on my hikes, but, you know, it is still its own thing. Luke's Gospel is the only one in the four Gospels where the topic of conversation between Moses and Elijah and Jesus is actually recorded. There they are, talking about what's about to go down in Jerusalem. Luke chooses to word the, the, use the word exodus, or we translated it as um, speaking of his departure, which, which he was going to do in Jerusalem. So they talked about this word. But the word actually is exodus in Greek, and it means it comes from exodus, right? That word we get exodus from is this, which is talking about what Jesus is going to do. That word to that audience was sure to garner a strong and visceral reaction when they heard it. They know what that word means, and they know the Exodus story. It is one of liberation and a freedom, and the connection that Luke is making to why Jesus is here, to what is about to happen, cannot be ignored or understated. Jesus also told us just a few weeks ago that he is here to bring release to the captives. We heard it in our confession this morning as well. Luke's gospel is about this very thing. That Jesus is here for liberation, for freedom. That is what he's going to do in Jerusalem. This whole story is pretty wild if we think about it, right? Transfiguration is a kind of wild, supernatural story. And at the same time, anyone who has ever been up on a mountain looking into the vast expanse of nature and more mountains and creation's beauty knows that it feels kind of supernatural up there too, even without glowing Jesus and his friends, right? And if you haven't been to a mountain, most of us probably have had this moment with a feeling of awe and astonishment. Maybe it was nature-related, right? Stars or northern lights or the ocean or being on a quiet lake or lightning bugs or snow you don't have to shovel or drive in, right? Sometimes it's a, a moment during church or at camp or while you're singing or hearing a song or at a milestone like a wedding or a funeral or a birth. Or it can be just a moment with a person you love. We all know this feeling. We sometimes call these feelings of awe and astonishment where God feels so close, we call them mountaintop experiences. And I think truly most of us feel in those moments just like Peter. We want to stay. We want to stay there and not go back to life as we know it. Notice that Peter makes his request of Jesus to stay just as Moses and Elijah are starting to leave. Verse 33 says, Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What he's saying is, let's stay. Let's try to capture this feeling And hold on to it for as long as we can. Can we just stay here? We want to access this feeling whenever we need it. We'll make it so easy, Jesus. We'll build you a place to hang out. You and your friends can just stay there. And then if we need to feel like this again, we can just come here and find you. 
It'll be so easy. You'll be right there. I love that Luke's gospel leaves this little note here, a detail about Peter having no idea what he's saying in this moment. I think it's so, so true. He's just like, ah, oh, stay, 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 don't go anywhere. I don't know what I'm saying, but I want you to, I want to keep this, right? He doesn't know what's going on at all, but he, all he knows is he wants it to keep happening. Haven't we felt like that at some point in our life? A really pure, beautiful moment that you just want to hang on to. Now, right as Peter says this, a cloud comes and covers them all up. And they get very scared. I like to think it's because they know you're not supposed to be on a mountain in a storm. But this cloud comes and takes over the whole mountain. And if that weren't scary enough, from the cloud they hear this voice, This is my son. Listen to him. Now, take note that the only other time in any gospel where we get this kind of word from God is when Jesus is baptized. A voice comes out of the cloud. You are my son. With you I am pleased. That word is directed at Jesus in that moment. But this time, this word is directed at the disciples. See, Jesus knows who he is. He knows what he's supposed to do, what he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. This note, this word, is for Peter and James and John, for the disciples, for us. This is my son. Listen to him. Jesus is the son of God. In case they weren't quite sure about this guy they'd been following, if they weren't quite sure who he really was, this is their moment of clarity. They heard God proclaim it. In that one moment, they have no doubts, no question. It is their mountaintop moment. It's that perfect moment of clarity where God feels so real and everything feels right and you have no questions or doubts for just a moment. It's that first real experience of God. We had a funeral this past week for longtime member Kay Daly, and during the service we sang Amazing Grace, as we often do at funerals. But this week, in the process of that funeral, I was working on this sermon, and one of the verses struck me differently. We sang, How precious does that grace appear the hour I first believed. It made me think of this story. The same thing, this moment where we first experience the grace and love and power and glory of God. That awe, that mountaintop experience, it feels special or important or, as the song says, precious. And really, who wouldn't want to stay there? Poet Jan Richardson wrote a poem for Transfiguration Sunday about this very feeling. She called it dazzling. Believe me, I know how tempting it is to remain inside this blessing, to linger where everything is dazzling and clear. We could build walls around this blessing and put a roof over it. We could bring in a table and chairs, could have the most amazing meals. We could make a home. We could stay. 
But this blessing is built for leaving. This blessing is made for coming down the mountain. This blessing wants to be in motion, to travel with you as you return to level ground. It will seem strange how quiet this blessing becomes when it returns to earth. It is not shy. It's not afraid. It simply knows how to bide its time, to watch and wait, to discern and pray, until that moment comes when it will reveal everything it knows, when it will shine forth with all it has seen, when it will dazzle with the unforgettable light you have carried all this way. So as much as they want to stay, to hold on to that feeling up there on the mountain, they come down. This blessing is built for leaving. We might want to stay up there, but we can't stay up there. As one of my favorite authors says, when you're on the mountaintop, all you can do is stand still and try not to fall, right? But the valley, that is where all the life is. It's where the air isn't so thin and the soil is fertile and the rivers flow. The valley is where we go when we climb down off the mountain. And yet, I believe the mountain gives us gifts. Gifts we can bring with us, like picking up a stone on the way and carrying it in our pocket to remind us of those moments of precious grace appearing. I totally do this. I have them everywhere. Shells from the ocean, rocks from the North Shore and Canada, dirt from Africa, a horse chestnut from Austria, an acorn from Fort Snelling, dried flowers from a bouquet, gifts I've taken with me off the mountain to remind me of that precious grace first appearing. I wonder what moments you've had where God's grace was particularly present to you. What places have you been in where you wanted to stay because you knew it was holy? What gifts have you carried with you down the mountain, back into the valley of the daily and the difficult and the mundane? Now you'd think the disciples would follow Jesus off the mountain and tell everyone what happened. Oh my gosh, you would not believe what we just saw. But they don't. They don't tell anyone, actually. They keep silent. Now Luke doesn't say why, but I have a guess. Luke's gospel tells us while they were up there, they were tired. They were scared, terrified even. So maybe they left that place and they started to doubt what they saw and heard. Maybe they try to explain it or make it make sense. Can't you just hear it? I was so tired. It was probably a dream that just felt really real. I was so scared. I mean, I thought we were going to die for a moment there, so I probably, I probably misheard, or at least, very least, misremembered. Here's maybe where I relate to Peter and James and John the most, because how often have I, too, had a powerful, incredible, beautiful precious experience of what could only be explained as God, and I've said nothing, or I've kept quiet, explained it away with logic and reason. Despite confirmation of who 
is in front of them. The disciples don't get it. They say nothing. And they don't understand. And yet, it changes nothing. Jesus comes down that mountain at the very end of this ninth chapter and he says he sets, Luke's gospel says he sets his face towards Jerusalem to set the captives free. The place where he will die and rise again. The disciples' doubts and confusion and questions and misplaced glory chasing don't change a single thing about what Jesus was about to do. And thank goodness, right? Because we are the same. We have doubts and confusion and questions, so many questions. And it changes nothing about what Jesus has done. This blessing, this grace is patient, as Jan Richardson says. It waits for me. It waits for you. It waits for us. To come down the mountain, into the valley, to show what it means for you and for me that this is God's Son. He's here to set you free. Until the moment comes when it will reveal everything it knows, when it will shine forth on all it has seen, when it will dazzle with the unforgettable light you have carried all this way that precious grace that first appeared. Amen.